0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I am D, James D, and I am here with my buddy, Jason Colvin. Actually, we're doing this via Zoom. I am in the Bahamas where it's a breezy 80 degrees, and Jason is sweating his balls off in (laughs) India.
1: (laughs) Yes, that is correct, sir. Shaken,
0: not stirred. All right, we are here to talk about the competition of the James Bond of the 60s against the James Bond of the 70s in movies that occurred in the 80s. Sean Connery, Roger Moore, head-to-head in 1983.
1: This summer, there were some amazing things happening in the movies. We had Return of the Jedi. National Lampoon's Vacation. We had your favorite movie, Jaws 3D.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We had Trading Places. I saw Boobies for the first time. It was a wonderful, wonderful year. But uh, yes, I'm happy to be back in 1983 again.
1: This was an incredible thing to hear that two Bond movies were going to be in theaters, not at the same time, but relatively close, like what, four months apart. I can remember being a kid going, what are you talking about? I can see Bond Bond in June and Bond in October. Right. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Sign me up.
0: I can, I have a, I actually have a memory of walking by the old movie theater in Central Mall, Fort Smith, Arkansas, seeing the poster for Never Say Never Again and saying to my dad, Why is this movie called Never Say Never Again? And my dad telling me, Well, I'm pretty sure that Sean Connery said he would never play James Bond again. And now he is. And so that's probably why the movie's named this. I was like, There's another guy who plays James Bond?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. So do you remember your first bond
0: experience no i mean it was i mean that's that memory right there is the first like vivid i can say yes that happened but but james bond was just kind of a part of childhood i mean my my dad loved the movies and they would come on tv all of the time yeah yeah. and so i just saw him you know they were just all out there and i just saw him bond was just out there and he was cool and i would see the movies as they came on yeah about you well,
1: yeah. So I, re- I remember very vividly uh in nineteen eighty one, my friend, he's like, Now we gotta go see For Your Eyes Only. And I'm like, What what is Four Your Eyes Only? He's like, It's it's the new James Bond movie. And I'm like, Who is James Bond? I don't I don't know who James Bond is, right? Oh wow. So yeah, okay. and he's like, You what? You know, you've got you're gonna love James Bond. We gotta go see it. And so We went and saw For Your Eyes Only and I was an instant James Bond fan. So, For Your Eyes Only for me is not only the best Roger Moore movie, but it's kind of my home movie. You know what I mean? So, that's the one I go back to is For Your Eyes Only. So, when Octopussy comes out two years later, in that two-year period, ABC used to have the Sunday night movie. They would show like The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker and diamonds are forever and I would just slowly acquire these movies and so by the time octopusy shows up I am ready for a new James Bond movie
0: that's awesome you know as time goes on you get the introduction of Timothy Dalton you get the introduction of Pierce Brosnan. and I can still remember having conversations with my friends when we knew that Roger Moore wasn't going to be the James Bond anymore of you know hey it needs to be that guy from Remington Steel he is the perfect guy for James Bond yeah yeah and then it wasn't him and everybody was outraged. And I think I I was like, I'm not going to go watch those movies. I'm upset that they <laughs> didn't make Remington Steele James Bond. That's just wrong. And then by the time that he actually, that Pierce Brosnan becomes James Bond, I was just like, he is the best James Bond who had the worst scripts to work with. There were some bad computer graphics going on in those movies. The scripts weren't super good, but he was a really great James Bond without much to work with that is true
1: however he started off with a really good one goldeneye in my opinion is a good bond movie and so he had all that good credit in the bank and the next bunch of them were terrible
0: they were really bad and goldeneye i mean that was the that was the introduction of james bond into the video game world too which i mean goldeneye was Fantastic. I didn't, I, I watched the movie, but I loved the video game. It was That's, awesome.
1: That is very true. Maybe my favorite home video game of all time. My friend's like, Hey, I got to show you this cool video game. I'm like, Listen, dude, I got a job and I got a wife. I don't have time for video games anymore. I played for like 30 seconds. And I'm like, I'm buying this tomorrow. How old are you, dude? I'm, I am. <laughs> I am old, but I am not as old as Sean Connery or Roger Moore in either of these two movies. Uh, For the record, let's go ahead and get that out there because that's an important factor when we discuss these two movies. Yeah. Sean Connery was 52 when he did Never Say Never Again. He had taken 12 years off. Yep. Diamonds Are Forever was in 1971. He was 40, but he looked like he was about 52. (laughs) (laughs)
0: he has an old look about him. He does. He he does.
1: Octopussy, Roger Moore was 55. He's three years older than Sean Connery. Most people don't really realize that.
0: He has a younger looking face. He just does. I mean, Roger Moore just has a younger looking appearance about him. Maybe it's the receding hairline that Sean Connery has. Maybe it's the wrinkles. I, I can't really, maybe Roger Moore has a good plastic surgeon i'm not real sure but <laughs> but roger moore always seemed to be younger even though the, the, he was actually about three years older than yeah
1: okay so today we ultimately going to compare never say never again from 1983 to octopussy 1983 connery versus moore battle of the bonds and it's going to be great but really the interesting stories here are kind of the behind the scenes stuff so if you yeah. say to yourself ah both of those movies sucked Hang on because there is some interesting stuff going on behind the scenes of these movies.
0: Absolutely. There there are much better James Bond movies out there than Never Say Never Again and Octopussy, but we chose these two because it was the summer of Bond versus Bond. That's right. And the and and the story there is an impressive one. Let's you want to jump into the history a little bit? Let's I'm ready to get into it. Let's go. So our story begins back in 1908 with the birth of Ian Fleming. A year later, we have the birth of Albert R. Broccoli, nicknamed Cubby Broccoli by his family. A few years after that, in 1915, we have the birth of Harry Saltzman. And then nine years later, we have the birth of Kevin McClury. <laughs> <laughs> McClory,
1: Kevin McClory
0: Obviously the most important figure in this is Ian Fleming He was born to a wealthy family Grew up in wealth And then of course a few years after his birth World War I begins And tragically his father dies in World War I This comes into play with the character of James Bond later. In the early movies, you don't really get his history. He's a very two-dimensional character, but later on, especially with the Daniel Craig version, you get some of that backstory, which includes him being an orphan. Yep, yep. So he ends up going to Eton for college, where he meets and intensely dislikes a gentleman named Skarmanga Is that right? Are you kidding yes, me? No, I'm not kidding. He's the Scarmonga is named after a guy that he hated in college. I don't think he had three nipples. <laughs> 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 but yes, that's where that name comes from. And he writes his first story there.
1: Wait, wait, it's wait. A
0: very, Let's let people in on the joke. If you are a just
1: basic, not very intricate James Bond fan, you may not recognize that name. That is the villain from the movie, The Man with the Golden Gun. And he does have three nipples, played by Christopher Lee. So, Which Roger Moore impersonates him by putting on a fake third nipple, which is a very weird part in that movie. (laughs) Keep going. Okay.
0: You mean my nubbin?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Chandler Bing and Scaramanga. Okay.
0: Right. So,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so while uh, while Fleming is in college, uh, Broccoli, his family has moved to the United States. They introduced broccoli seeds to the U.S., according to his obituary in the New York Times. I don't know how accurate that is, but, you know, let's go with it. We, I I, mean, are you
1: telling is- me that Broccoli is named after Cubby Broccoli's relatives?
0: That's what it sounds like from the from the obit in the New York Times. Yes, That's
1: pretty they, they're cool. the
0: ones that brought the seeds over. They're they're from Italy, and broccoli is is based on the Italian words. And so, who am I? I'm just a guy here. I just I, <laughs> I, I report it as a read it. That's all okay. I can do. Okay. Okay. All right. And then Saltzman is running away from his home and joining the circus. I'm not kidding. Literally joining the circus. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. This is an interesting bunch of characters. And then I I guess I guess uh, McClure is learning to scuba dive. I'm not sure what he's doing at this time. So Ian Fleming he goes to college, um, and then uh, does some uh, does some journalism work, and then World War II starts to happen, and he becomes, due to the be- at the behest of his mother, he becomes an assistant to a gentleman named Admiral Gottfried, who is in charge of all of like the secret operations of the UK during World War Two, and Godfrey basically tells Fleming hey, you are a super creative guy. Use that creativity to think up stuff to help us. And there's, I mean, he actually thought up a plan in order to get control of the Enigma machine. His idea was to have a UK pilot fly a... German plane and crash it in the ocean near a German ship so that the ship will come over and try to save them. And then the pilot then takes over the boat and they they get access to the Enigma machine. And that was his plan. For several years, he's involved with this type of espionage type of creative service. And that's what is the seed for all of his stories. I mean, he basically said 90% of his stories are based upon facts. And the other 10% are him just making some stuff up.
1: That's really cool. You know, Thunderball and Never Say Never Again. I mean, that's knocking on the door of being familiar territory to the plot lines of those two movies. Okay. That's amazing. Keep going.
0: Okay. So he, at some point tells somebody, you know, when I'm done with all of this, I am going to write the greatest spy novel that has ever been written. And so he ends his time with Admiral Gottfried, who becomes kind of the basis of M later on. Uh
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: And then he ends up um, renting this place down in Jamaica called Golden Eye. Golden Eye, where Sting
1: wrote Every Breath You Take and all of synchronicity, basically. Yes. It's incredible.
0: So he didn't write, he did not write his first Bond book until he was 43 years old. That's incredible, man. It's insane. It's a year younger than I am right now. I mean, it's like better get busy. Starting a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> So, during this time that he's doing all of this cool stuff, Broccoli starts working for Howard Hughes after he takes over the movie The Outlaw. You know The Outlaw? If you don't know the movie, you know the picture of Jane Russell profile with her amazing, like, torpedo uh, (laughs) movies going on there. I am familiar. Keep going. He becomes a part of that movie with Howard Hughes when Howard Hughes takes over for Howard Hawks when he got fired. This will come into play later on. And so Saltzman has been in the circus and he's like in vaudeville. And so he at some point becomes interested in James Bond, likes the character and he buys the rights to the character of James Bond. Broccoli wants to buy the rights to the character of James Bond, but then finds out that Saltzman already has them. He through a mutual friend meets up with him and they decide instead of You know, Broccoli says, I want to buy the rights from you. Saltzman says, no, but I will form a company with you. And that company becomes Eon Productions, which is the company that is responsible for almost all of the James Bond movies. So Ian Fleming in this time, this was 1961 that they bought the rights to, to James Bond. He, unfortunately, about three years earlier, thought, hey, it'd be a great idea to make James Bond into a movie. Uh-huh,
1: uh-huh, and
0: he thought that because he had recently met a guy named Kevin McClury, and Kevin McClury was this guy who was a, an avid scuba diver and adventurer, so McClory had also been had become involved in movies. He had been an assistant to John Houston and wh- had worked on the African Queen Moulin Rouge and uh, what ended up being an assistant director on Moby Dick, which starred James Mason, who we will learn later was one of the original people considered to be James Bond in the first James Bond movies. Oh, all right, cool. right. So <laughs> this guy he was he got he was he hooked up with Elizabeth Taylor. I mean this is not this is no, you know, con man. This is a guy who's in the industry and and um romancing the starlets. Okay, now wait a minute. Yeah. Kevin McClory dated Elizabeth Taylor in her prime. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. He uh-huh. dated her and actually got engaged to marry her. Anybody at- who can date Elizabeth Taylor in her prime
1: has kind of got it going on. All right. Keep going.
0: So, unfortunately, Kevin McClory had come in 1958 and talked to Ian Fleming and said, "Hey, I think that this James Bond character would be a great character to have in the movies." And Ian Fleming was like, "Cool, let's do that." Yeah. And so, and so they together started working on a movie script. Movie script had multiple names, including James Bond of the secret service and longitude 78 west okay yeah that's a terrible 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 it's a terrible terrible title title. that's like
1: that's like saying i'm gonna do a movie (laughs) about disney world i'm gonna call it main street usa you know i mean just that's a
0: terrible title all those things aside fleming mcclory and a guy named jack winningham all work together they put this script together in 1959 fleming met with mcclory and winningham to have a script conference
1: and that's when they actually Fleming is the one who changed the title from longitude 78 West to Thunderball January of 1960 McClory visits Fleming at GoldenEye to tell him he's working on the final script for this thing and you know Fleming's just like okay yeah keep going so once they sit down and talk about the final script he goes away to kind of finalize things. Fleming sits down at his desk at GoldenEye and writes Thunderball based on that script.
0: Yeah. And just to, I mean, just to let you know how Fleming worked, it was unlike most authors work. He was producing a book every single year. I mean, from Casino Royale on, he, he issued a book every year. And he would go, he would go have a swim in the morning out at Golden Eye. He'd have a swim in the ocean. He would come back and have a breakfast of scrambled eggs and toast. He would sit down at his old typewriter and he would crank out the pages. I mean, just type nonstop, didn't review it, didn't look at it. I mean, there was no meticulousness about this. He was just right, 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 right. And so I'm sure that at the point that they are at this stage where he's got this outline in his head, there's no question that he should have known better than to write a book based upon what they have already talked about and not give any credit to anybody. It's it's really not
1: smart on Ian Fleming's part. And I, I hate to say that because he's the author of a lot of these stories that I love so much, but, mm-hmm. man, he just wasn't very bright on how he decided to
0: go about well, I mean, he, his lifestyle, I think, was very similar to James Bond, and I think he had this kind of bulletproof attitude about him that he could probably do whatever he wanted to do and get away with it just because yeah. of the life that he had led, and unfortunately, he was wrong in this particular circumstance.
1: Yeah, so Kevin McClory gets a hold of an early copy of this novel called Thunderball, and when he reads it, he's like, what the crap? This, this guy has stolen my ideas. And when they had got together, of course, there's lots of drinking, lots of talking, lots of discussion, and it becomes hard to sort out who thought about what. Mm-hmm. And so, so
0: McClory sued to keep the book off the shelves. Just to let you know, I mean, we we don't want to paint McClory. I've I've given him kind of the e- evil introduction a couple times, but he did. He's not necessarily the bad guy in this particular scenario. Like Ian Fleming got together with Jack Winningham and said, "Hey, how about we just kind of kick this guy out?" Yeah. I mean, he he had he, his motivation was to get this guy out of the picture, and Whittingham didn't fall into that plan. And ultimately, when Thunderball came out, McClury said, hey, have you seen this? And Jack Whittingham's like, yeah. And so they both sued him. It was at the High Court in London, as you said, that happened on November 20th, 1963. And the case was settled in nine days. Right. I don't know what it was like back in 1963, but a case getting settled nine days after it got filed is amazing. That's pretty open and shut, right? Uh, yeah. So, and I mean, just to, to let you know who was probably the culpable party here, Fleming paid McClury damages of 35,000 pounds. He also paid his court costs, which was 52,000 pounds. And McClury got the future versions of the novel credited as a, based on a screen treatment by Kevin McClury, Jack Whittingham, and Ian Fleming in that order. Like, I mean, that's freaking huge. Yeah, but what we also need to know, and and this is important, some people make decisions under certain types of stress. In the middle of that nine days, Ian Fleming had a freaking heart attack.
1: Among the things, like you said, that that McClory won, he also had the right to make Thunderball as a movie.
0: Yeah, he won the screenplay treatments Mm -hmm. and that was something here's here's an interesting thing now so but this is 1963 yeah. so they worked together in 1958 the first Bond movie comes out in 1962 yes Dr. No Dr. No comes out in sixty two. this is 1963 a year later so we I mean they all know Dr. No is a big hit Cubby Broccoli is involved with the movie at this point. Harry Saltzman is involved with the movie at this point. And so they say to him, yes, you can have the screenplay rights to this particular storyline. And then you are allowed to reproduce it 10 years from now. So here's, here are the two possibilities that I see as an, as a legal analysis on this one for them to give up, not only, hey, we're going to give you the screenplay now, but we're going to let you reproduce it every 10 years. There's only two possibilities. Either they thought this thing, the story is going to be over in 10 years and nobody's going to care. Right. Or they thought we're going to be so financially successful in 10 years after making all of the Bond stories and, and movies that we've got that we're going to be rich enough to stop him from doing this, the, you know, or some sort of remake of the Thunderball. And ultimately, that's kind of what ends up happening.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. It's very interesting. It seems to me that they are trying to give McClory everything they can to kind of make him go away. Pacify him with film rights, remake rights. And I was yeah. telling you that McClory gets all this credit for Thunderball. But there's some question about whether or not he gets credit for Spectre. Which yeah. Spectre, you know,
0: Spectre's huge. I mean James that's,
1: Bond's bad main bad guy is
0: Spectre. The key bad guy. I mean, the the, the through the series, you get a you get a movie in the twenty-first century named Spectre. I mean, it's and you look at all of the mm. all of the spoofs, any of those things, it's always got Spectre involved, right? I mean Absolutely. If you look at Austin Powers and Number Two and Dr. Evil. That is all Spectre, right? Right. And then, you know, the chairs that are all lined up. I mean, so you watch Thunderball and you see... You see number two walk in with his eye patch, and they all go to the chairs. <laughs> and the guy who's hidden behind the screens petting his little cat, his white cat. I'm That's just all like, from Thunderball. It's yeah. all from Thunderball. So the fact that Kevin McClory has got the rights to this particular storyline is huge because this particular storyline is a major factor in so many of the Bond films. And yeah, specifically,
1: Spectre was the bad guy in Doctor No. The bad guy in From Russia with Love. It's mentioned in Goldfinger. So they don't want him to have any claim on revenues from those previous movies that are huge successes. But just to clarify, Spectre is a group of bad guys that they needed to create that wasn't the Russians and it wasn't the mafia. It, was just
0: and it wasn't the Germans.
1: This And it wasn't the Germans, right? This nefarious group of bad guys. The Inspector stands for Special... Executive for Terrorism, Revenge, Extortion.
0: Yeah, and the introduction of Spectre in in Thunderball is fantastic because it's just this meeting of evil characters who are like... It's like a business meeting of... <laughs> criminals it's and it's not it, it's it's fantastic and and then one of the guy you know there's two guys who were responsible for some sort of i think it was like a drug deal or something like that oh yeah and the head man of specter says yes but basically you've been cooking the books and one of the guys is like what no and the other guy's like huh, yeah everything's cool we're cool and that cool guy's just zapped dumped and he's gone yes yeah, so and he goes under and he's like i'm very
1: badly burned but <laughs> – oh, no, I'm sorry. That's Austin Powers. So. I get them confused a little bit. Bells of almonds. <laughs> this is bad, I think. <laughs> but the bad okay. guy you – before we get off of this, so Spectre is a very important piece in this. Obviously, Thunderball, they got their butts kicked in court. McClory (laughs) took him to task on that one. But Blofeld is in play as well. Blofeld is like if somebody sued George Lucas and they won the rights to Darth Vader, right? Blofeld is the number one bad guy. He's the head of Spectre. He's the bald guy that strokes the cat in all the movies, right? Right. And that, they wanted to make sure that Kevin McClory didn't get a hold of that guy.
0: And just as a side note, in the Austin Powers movie, the character of number two is played by the actor Robert Wagner, who, when they were trying to decide who the new new James Bond would be after Timothy Dalton, they were looking at him and he was like, no, I'm too American. You should should just go ahead and give that to Pierce Brosnan.
1: (laughs) Speaking of Americans, I'll throw a little plug in here for Octopus real quick. Yeah. So obviously when Never Say Never Again is remade, which never say never again for those who don't know is a remake of thunderball based on kevin mcclory's ability to remake that movie every 10 years so he did that with never say never again right connery comes back takes the role at age 52 roger moore is three years older than him so when he is in octopussy he's 55 right but so after for your eyes only roger moore said i want to retire Mm -hmm. I'm too old to do James Bond anymore, and so you can actually YouTube. James Brolin does his screen test as an American James Bond, and I was telling you, he doesn't even play with an English accent. He is doing it as Mr. Cool American.
0: Think George Clooney, you know, just cool and classy American. So – Sean Connery is not the first actor to ever portray James Bond. And Dr. No is not, it, it was not the first novel. So why wasn't the first novel the first James Bond movie? Well, actually, it was, right? The first time that James Bond is ever portrayed. On the screen is on a TV show called Climax in an episode called Casino Royale. The actor that portrays him is Barry Nelson, who hasn't been in pretty much anything else that you probably would have heard of except The Shining. He is the guy who uh, s- who sends Jack Nicholson off to the, the hotel <laughs> with his oh, family. Oh, are you yeah. serious? Yeah, hotel yes, manager. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. So. So he plays this he plays this James Bond character, but he plays him as an American. And so that lets Ian Fleming know, hey, Bond might be good for the screen, which then in 1955, a year later, he sells the rights to Casino Royale to a guy named Greg Radoff, okay? And he's a producer. Now he's thinking, okay, they're gonna make Casino Royale into a movie. The only problem is Greg Radoff and his writer, whose name is Lorenzo Simple, uh, who, <laughs> to, to let you know his his experience, he wrote Three Days of the Condor and he wrote the early, ver- like the 60s versions of Batman with Adam West. <laughs> <Aye>. <laughs> but, but Greg Radoff and Lorenzo Simple look at James Bond and they go, this character is stupid. There's no way that anybody would believe that a man could say the stuff to women that he's saying right now. (laughs) Um, So what we need to do is we need to change the character into a woman and we're going to call her Jane Bond. No, no. So fortunately before all of that happened, Greg Radoff dies and Greg Radoff's attorney slash agent charles feldman buys the rights to casino royale from his widow and he gets together with howard hawks i told you he'd come back in howard hawks and he says okay we we need to make this movie uh we need to make this book into a movie casino royale need to make this book into a movie and they were going to hire lee puckett as a writer And they were going to hire Cary Grant as James Bond. Now, I know you've heard of Cary Grant, but do you know who Lee Puckett is? No, tell me. Well, remember in our Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Back to the Future episode where I talked to you about George Lucas telling Lawrence Kasdan, hey, I had this lady writing The Empire Strikes Back for me, but then she died? Yes. Lee Puckett. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So Charles Feldman has the rights to Casino Royale, which is why it never got made by Eon Productions as a Bond movie. They started with Dr. No, and then they went through all of their pieces. And then, you know, we're talking about the time in history where two James Bond movies were going head to head, but it's not the first time that this ever happened. The first time it ever happened was in 1967 when casino royale went against you only live twice so casino royale is a james bond movie but it's a spoof right it's a satire and it's it stars david niven who is you would know i mean our age group would know him as the villain if you call him that in the pink panther right david niven was one of the guys who is originally considered to be james bond david niven cary grant James Mason, who I mentioned before, were the guys that they wanted to be James Bond before they ultimately settled on Sean Connery. But then 1967 happens, David Niven's like, yeah, let's go ahead and do this thing. And so they make this movie in Casino Royale that's got him and Peter Sellers and several other famous actors. And it's all this who's the real James Bond kind of storyline. And it's all supposed to be comedy which was appropriate but that's the first time that two bonds went head to head in the same year so back to thunderball when
1: cubby broccoli and harry saltzman are making this movie and they see that kevin mcclory is going to be a royal pain in the butt a fly in the ointment a monkey in the wrench <laughs> i can't wait to do die hard but yeah they make him producer of the movie Thunderball, hoping again to pacify this guy so he will go away. Even though he's got in his back pocket, he can remake Thunderball every 10 years. So they put him in charge of filming underwater scenes.
0: Right. He was the scuba diver. And that's why this movie is so that underwater scenes are such a big factor in this movie is because Kevin McClure was a big scuba diver. And he's like, hey, I really want, you know, underwater scenes to be a big part of this. And so back in the 60s, those underwater scenes were amazing. I mean, nobody had done that stuff except in like the TV series Flipper.
1: Yeah. But that's why Thunderball, when you look at it today, it is like watching a movie in slow motion because everything's (laughs) underwater. Yeah the fight scenes are very slow motion you know so <laughs> right
0: right so it's interesting you know that's that is a factor of looking you know we're 80s kids and so we're looking at what was going on in the 80s back and we're and we're thinking okay thunderball a little slow with the i mean why are we spending so much time in the underwater scenes but that's because of our perspective, right? It's interesting. I mean, we've gone through we've gone through several different steps where Ian Fleming is just trying to get this thing to become a movie. From my perspective, I'm just thinking, how do you not imme- how does a studio not immediately go, Yeah, this is a fantastic character, and this needs to be a movie? It didn't happen until until JFK yep. listed from Russia with Love as one of his top 10 books. That was the push that Broccoli and Saltzman were looking for to get their movie made, and that's what led to the studio going to greenlighting Dr. No.
1: Yep. It also caused the novels to explode of Ian Fleming's.
0: Right. So, starting with Dr. No, we had studios that wanted a big name. They wanted Cary Grant. They wanted James Mason. But the problem is, Cary Grant says, I don't want to do more than one movie. And James Mason says, I don't want to do more than two movies. And then they get to David Niven and he's like, no, I'm I'm not really interested in doing more than three movies. But ultimately they decide we want to get an unknown actor to play the part of James Bond. And so they're going through several actors. And one of the guys that comes through is this unknown guy who's only been in this kind of weird little movie called Darby O'Gill and the Little People and was in the chorus for like South Pacific or something. Yeah. But Saltzman says that when he walked in, it was his walk that got him the part. He's this big man, but walks with such poise like a cat. And he said that only he, this is Saltzman, Harry Saltzman said that only Sean Connery and Albert Finney are the only two large guys who walk in this way and would have been appropriate for this part, which is ironic because in the early eighties, just before never say never came out, Sean Connery was actually looking at becoming daddy Warbucks in the (laughs) movie Annie. And I mean, he really wanted it. He loved the play. He wanted to be in the movie, but he was unsure about his singing ability. He even took voice lessons, but they basically said, you got to tell us now, are you in or are you out? And he's like, I'm not sure. And at that point they said, "Never mind. we're going to go with Albert Finney, who couldn't really sing anyway. He was terrible. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yes. So it didn't matter. It was still a wonderful movie with a terrible singing, Daddy Warbucks. Sean Connery could have been that guy. How weird would life have been at that point? Wow. But they they back in the early 60s, they land on Sean Connery, who, who was a casket maker. Yep. Who was, was a lorry driver. He had done all kinds of things. And oddly, Cubby Broccoli had also been a casket maker. I don't know. Maybe that's the connection they found. Anyway, Ian Fleming hated the idea of Sean Connery being James Bond. He would refer to him only as that lorry driver. (laughs) But then when Dr. No came out and it was a massive success, Ian Fleming was like, okay, I like Sean Connery. It's all right. You know, we weren't
1: alive, obviously, in the 1960s, but the 1960s are kind of known as having spy mania, right? So the Bond movies take off. Thunderball is the first movie ever that they showed
0: round the clock 24 hours a day because they had so many people waiting in line to watch this movie. Okay, Jason, let's jump back in. Let's talk about some kind of staples for the James Bond movie formula, okay? Yeah. So, the first movie that came out in the James Bond series that we consider a canon film is Dr. No, right? Right. We we talked about some of the things that came before, but Dr. No is the first of the Eon productions, the first Sean Connery Bond movie, and it has, as the beginning scene, the silhouette, the gun barrel, the turn and shoot that is iconic for all Bond movies, and... When this first came out, the the barrel and the silhouette, everybody started applauding at that scene before <laughs> anybody knew what was going on with James Bond. But you know what? It what wasn't was Sean Connery. I know. That's amazing, huh? It was. Yeah, it was a stuntman named Bob Simmons. It was not Sean Connery in that first gun barrel scene.
1: OK, here's a little side note to to. Bob Simmons, all right? The guy who did the gun barrel scene, I think for the first three movies, he is the guy at the beginning of Thunderball that's dressed in drag that James Bond pulls the... That's a man, baby, and punches him right in the face. (laughs) That's the guy who does the gun barrel scene.
0: That was a woman. They had a woman, and you saw her face. It was a woman, a woman, a woman, right until Bond punches her square in the jaw. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
1: So, yes, the gun barrel scene is absolutely a critical part of the Bond canon, which you don't get at the beginning of Never Say Never Again. And really, Dr. No, the first movie out of the gate, you didn't have that pre-sequence scene, and they were still kind of feeling their way a little bit before they kind of nailed down the formula.
0: Right. And uh, just as a an, an interesting... C- connection dr no was released the same day as the beatles first single and then is there's this right? kind of weird yeah there's this kind of weird competition and then even in james bond at some point he's he he makes the comment about i can't remember the quote but the, it, it ends with it's like listening to the beatles without earmuffs on yeah it's in goldfinger
1: yeah yes james bond is too cool for the beatles
0: Right. So it wasn't until Goldfinger that we got that full formula of the beginning scene with like Bond always seduces a lady, he kills a bad guy, he gives his witty one-liner, and then the music and the silhouettes begin. And as it turns out, the Goldfinger soundtrack actually outsold the Beatles that that year that Goldfinger (laughs) came out. Goldfinger!
1: Goldfinger! Yeah, so there's a lot of things to the formula, which I'd love to discuss maybe at the end when we kind of do final judgment. But yeah, th- you have the the pre gun barrel sequence, you right? Have the gun barrel, you have yep. the theme song, opening credits, silhouette so
0: of naked ladies,
1: octopusy kind of pushes the envelope on <laughs> on this. You know, you have gadgets and babes,
0: bad guys and henchmen. Don't don't forget the cool oh, cars. Yeah. We
1: we've already argued about this on a previous podcast about what the coolest. Right. James Bond yeah. Carr was.
0: And I maintain I maintain my position. It's the Aston Martin. But And then at the end, we're going to compare Bonds. With that formula, you had a lot of people who thought, wow, this is just something that we can make fun of. So there was tons of talk shows like David Frost would make fun of Bond routinely back in, in the UK. And his co-host later got her own show, Millicent Martin. And she would do these uh, Bond spoofs as well and one of the actors that she got to play bond um in her spoof was someone you might have heard of his name is roger moore
1: oh really i'd love to yeah. see that man
0: yeah it's great it is a great one it's they're they're trying the comedy out and he's he's still bond i mean he's it's 10 years before he becomes bond but he's still bond in this goofy wow you know Like late night TV, bit. So Thunderball is the ninth book in Ian Fleming's series. It is the eighth full length Bond novel, and it was first published in the UK by Jonathan Cape on March 27th, 1961. It was the novelization of that script that we talked about. After the lawsuit, McClory gained the literary and film rights for the screenplay while Fleming was given the rights to the novel, although it had to be recognized as being, quote, based on a screen treatment by Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham, and Ian Fleming in that order. Yeah,
1: it's interesting.
0: You and I talked off air, Cubby Broccoli and Harry
1: Saltzman had to move up the production of Thunderball or else Kevin McClory was going to do it without them. So the interesting thing to me as a Bond fan is Thunderball is the fourth movie made, but that wasn't the original slate. We were supposed to get On Her Majesty's Secret Service as number four, which means that Sean Connery would have played instead of George Lazenby, the Bond from that movie. Kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, this lawsuit is not an insignificant thing. I mean, Ian Fleming had a heart attack during this short lawsuit. He had a heart attack in the middle of it. And then just a little while after, just August of 1964, nine months after the trial is over, he has another heart attack and dies at the age of 56. So they make that movie, and then in 1976, 10 years later, McClury announces he wants to produce an original James Bond film. The title that he wants to use is Warhead, Warhead 8, or James Bond of the Secret Service. But the project gets hampered by the Fleming trustees and the Eon producers, filing lawsuits right? and right. they he gets slowed up. I mean, this is 1976 and we know Never Say Never Again doesn't come out for another seven years. He was not able to get the title of James Bond of the Secret Service. They did stop him from doing that because it was too close to the title of Her Majesty's Secret Service.
1: Now, here's the interesting thing to me. Obviously, with Never Say Never Again, you get Sean Connery back in the role, but before he sort of had him there, He needed a bond, so he was going after Richard Burton, and he went after George Lazenby. That would have been interesting to see George Lasaby back in that role after 1969's Her Majesty's Secret Service with Orson Welles
0: as Blofeld. Right. Eon Productions was was looking at other actors to play in Octopussy and then when Sean Connery finally says, okay, I'll do it again, Eon Productions says, there's no way we can come out with James Brolin. And so at that point, Roger Moore, he had fulfilled his contract and was on a movie by movie basis and he was ready to be done but they convinced him to come back and do Pussy.
1: yeah you can't take on sean connery in some rogue james bond movie with some <laughs> new guy right <laughs> right you know as early as like you said 1975 1976 he's getting mm-hmm. this together in 1978 he works on james bond of the secret service hoping to get orson Welles as blofeld richard attenborough as the director and they were hoping to go up against moonraker
0: right and richard attenborough Of course, we know later on, later on, goes on to become the grandfather in Jurassic Park, the park owner. That's right. Who they had originally considered for that role, Mr. Sean Connery. Connery. Yes. And then James Brolin, of course, is the key actor in the movie Westworld, which was written and directed by Michael Crichton.
1: He also plays PW in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Well, that, we can't leave that a, out, obviously. <laughs> obviously a very that's... James Bond-like performance. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but here's where it gets really interesting to me. So when Kevin McClory starts organizing this idea of going up against Moonraker, and I'm going to kick their butt, and they're going to be sorry they did this to me, he calls Sean Connery, and so he calls him up and says, listen, you're the best Bond ever. You know what he does. We need your insight. Why don't you come over and help us and be a consultant on our script? Which we know is a big smokescreen just to kind of lure (laughs) him back in.
0: Right. to play the role again. Right. And so the way that they ultimately land on the title that they land on is once he accepts the role, his wife says to him, I thought you said you were never going to do another James Bond movie again. And he's like, well, I feel like I need to do it again. And she says, well, never say never again. <laughs> and I she actually that. receives credit in the closing credits for the title of the of the movie.
1: Okay. Before we get to... Never Say Never Again and Octopussy. And thank you for hanging around. It's taken us a long time to get here. But <laughs> there's a couple of, of of interesting tidbits in the other Bond movies before we get to this point. Okay. Oh, yeah. So The Spy Who Loved Me, you're going up against this guy named Stromberg. That was originally supposed to be Blofeld, but because of all these legal issues, they didn't want something to happen to Spy Who love Me, so they just changed Spectre and Blofeld. They took that out, so that's why Stromberg acts exactly like Blofeld. And at the beginning of For Your Eyes Only, there is a scene where Bond is visiting his dead wife's grave, who was killed in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. He gets in a helicopter, and his helicopter is taken over by a guy in a wheelchair- with a bald head and you know stroking the cat you don't ever see his face and he never names himself and it's clearly supposed to be Blofeld he's taking control of the helicopter and he's going to kill Bond so Bond escapes takes back control of the helicopter picks this guy up and he takes him and he dumps him down this humongous chimney and it's basically like we're killing Blofeld double birds to you Kevin McClory
0: Haven't really talked about what happened when Sean Connery stopped doing the Bond movies and Roger Moore took over. There was a big backlash at the idea of having Moore take over. And I really, I realize we have that George Lazenby thing in the middle there. Right. When this happened in 83, there was kind of this big, like all of those people who had been Roger Moore haters were like, ah, finally the real James Bond is back, right? Yeah. But as we find out, that movie did not do as well as Octopus did. That's right. All right, everybody, now that you know the history of these two movies, join us next week when we will get into the comparison of Never Say Never Again and Octopussy. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you next week.